Hi, I'm Elin Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people like me can take as part of this national project. Today, I want to talk about our politics, specifically Indigenous representation in politics, the challenges and opportunities, and what it takes to get a seat at the table. So I'm talking to one of only 10 Indigenous MPs currently sitting in the House of Commons, Michael McLeod. Michael has a long history of public service. At 22 years old, he became the first ever Indigenous mayor of his hometown of Fort Providence. He later served as an MLA in the Legislative Assembly of the Northwest Territories and since 2015 has been the MP representing his home territory. Hello, Tanshi Etlanete. Thanks for joining me today, Michael. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling from my home in Fort Providence, Northwest Territories. That's where you were born and grew up, right? You're a Métis of Dene and French-Canadian ancestry from a large family in Fort Providence. And the way you described it to me, you grew up in a fairly traditional way of life. What language did you speak growing up? Well, I was born in, in Fort Providence. Uh, it's the first community on the Mackenzie River. Uh, we call the Mackenzie River Decho, which means big river in the indigenous language of the area. Uh, I was born in a small uh, log cabin and uh, we had uh, quite a large family and uh, my family uh, spoke three different languages uh, at least my parents did my parents spoke uh, the Michif French which is the the language that uh, uh, some of our uh, family members that came to this area from uh, the, the Red River uh, Manitoba area uh, brought the Michif language with them and they continued to speak it here and we also uh, uh, spoke the Dene language, uh, and Dene is the word for Indian here. It means uh, it means people, and my parents were were fluent, and uh, as was everybody in the community. And both my parents also spoke English, but uh, uh, at home we all spoke the Michif language until uh, we started school. Uh, I I started school at six years old and went to the federal Indian day school. And uh, it was it was uh, English only. And so we were not allowed to speak any any word that was not English. And if, if you uh, if you did, you got you got punished, uh, usually by getting strapped with a, a big rubber strap. So uh, my parents uh, um, didn't really want uh, you know, to, to lose our language, but at the same time, they didn't want us to get strapped. And my mother was very concerned because my dad was, uh, was very upset anytime anybody punished us that way because as Indigenous people, uh, slapping or hitting or uh, raising your hand towards a child wasn't something that was done. Like, my parents never, never, ever touched me uh, in anger. And... Uh, and so my parents, my, especially my dad, would get very upset. My mom was always worried that she was going to go uh, <laughs> do do something crazy at the school. So, uh, you know, we 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 kind of were 
encouraged just to let, let's let's learn the language is what my my dad was saying let's learn to speak english and and try to get a good education and we'll try to see what uh, you can do to keep the language down the road you know once you got a, a good job and everything is fine but uh, uh, no the the uh, because we uh, went from the federal indian day school and all of us in my family and and it was it was the case for everybody in our community and pretty much over the all over the north we were then sent to the residential school uh, uh, in, in my case it was most it was after i hit high school but uh, uh, my brothers and sisters uh, went earlier they went to to the uh, the residential schools at, at a fairly young age and and none of us were able to talk to anybody at the residential schools in our language so uh we all understand it uh we're still if somebody talks to us uh in in the Michif language we we understand it i understand probably about 50 percent of the the Dene language or the indigenous language of the area but uh speaking it is a real challenge because i i think in english you know I dream in English. I, I don't. I don't dream in the uh, in the in the in the Métis French anymore. And so uh, we went from having quite a few languages uh, spoken in our household, pretty much down to one. And uh, my mother actually could could talk to uh, people in 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 the different tribes around the area. Uh, I think probably in five different languages. She spoke three fluently the ones i mentioned but she was able to speak uh, to uh, some of the tribes that were a little further away enough to to get the message across but uh, uh we did we didn't inherit any of that we didn't we didn't get any of that because uh, the policies of the day really discouraged us from from to uh, speaking the language and and it became uh, uh something that was uh it was almost a, a shameful to to try to speak the language uh, I, I i noticed that uh, other people would mock us uh, and uh, even indigenous people would the ones that were fluent would would joke about our our attempts to speak the language and, and uh, so people just quit speaking it pretty much and now it's a real struggle yeah, everybody my age and, and younger is, is really struggling. There's there's uh, immersion courses and uh, there's language revitalization attempts happening, but it, it's slow. Uh, the language is deteriorating faster than we're producing speakers, for sure. Right. I tried to greet you initially in Mishif and Dene. I'm not sure what's comprehensible. You can find resources online, but it's not easy to try to learn, that's for sure. Yeah, and... and and the Michif language, uh, because it's it's a, a mixture of French and and the traditional language, the indigenous language of the area, it differs. It differs. Uh, like the Michif language spoken in Manitoba is different from what we speak in in the Northwest Territories. And and because the Michif language was so isolated in the Northwest Territories to a small population of Métis. The language, it didn't change. The words we use that are, are French are, are so old. Uh, if I try to uh, talk to somebody that speaks French, 
they a lot of times will say, who talks like that? I mean, that's how my, you're using words that my grandparents would use, you know, uh, and like we, we weren't exposed to uh, other international French speakers. And so our, our, our little uh, French kind of stayed the same, but now there's nobody left to talk to uh, after I'm in this community to, uh, yeah, it's very upsetting to, to the, to the, the children that are growing up now, like my children are, are very angry, very angry at the system, very angry at the government, very angry at the church and, and the whole assimilation process that took place and, and, and robbed them, uh, robbed me, but more them because now they, they can't even come to us to, to help them. Uh, I mean, I was able to turn to my parents if I was stuck on a word, but now uh, it, it's harder for me. And uh, Yeah, it can be hard to retain what we learn at such a young age. You also got engaged in politics quite young. You were only 22 when you were elected mayor of Fort Providence, and then you went on to serve three terms as a member of the Legislative Assembly in the Northwest Territories, the last two in Cabinet, and then federal politics. You ran for the Liberal Party in a 2015 federal election. You won and you were re-elected in 2019 and again in this most recent election. Why did you become a politician? My, I think uh, my father had a, a big influence on me. My father was, uh, was not a person that uh, engaged in politics. He, uh, he actually didn't like politicians too much. <laughs> and both you and your brother became politicians. Yeah, interestingly, uh, both my brother and I became politicians, and, and some of my nephews are engaged in politics now. But uh, he was he was a person that, um, uh, you know, he was educated enough so he could do income tax uh, returns. He could write letters. He, uh, you know, he understood quite a bit more than most people here. Uh, were able to there was there's no but there was really no uh, office or uh, of any sort that would help indigenous people that couldn't speak or read and and so he helped people he our house was a revolving door of people coming in and, and asking questions or getting them uh, my father to help them try to resolve issues whether it was a uh, a letter that needed to be written or old age pension or income tax return. So, um, you know, he made a big difference in their life and like, he didn't charge them anything. He just, you know, he had, there was nobody else. So he had, he felt he needed to step up. So as I got older, he, he got me to help him do income tax returns. And I started to get to know the elders quite a bit. And I was growing up in a community where there was a residential school and had been since the 1800s. And uh, I carried a, a lot of anger because I, I grew up listening to the horror stories that uh, of incidents that happened in the school because both my parents attended. They didn't, my, my parents, because they were local residents, only went to school during the day and then returned at home. So they didn't have it as bad as, this, as, as the kids that came from all over the north to the school. And uh, it, it really angered me that, that nobody could step in. I, I would be very angry at my parents and say, why didn't anybody help them? And they would say, well, you couldn't. You would go to jail. The police were there. And 
so between the, the anger that I felt and uh, for for what was happening and, and angry that nobody could help and then seeing my dad actually help people made me really want to make a difference and uh, as soon as I went to the uh, to to high school I, I I got involved and and I knew that being involved is where you could make a difference and you could make change so I, I was involved. You know, I I was I formed the first uh, student council at our little elementary school, and then I joined the, the board of governors uh, as a as a student rep at the at the residential school, and uh, I, I just kept going. When I when I came back, uh, a lot of the elders wanted me to travel to the tribal council meetings because a lot of them couldn't speak English well, and I was anxious to go because I wanted to change our community i wanted to improve our community not so much on the indigenous issue side but for sporting events and for facilities and things of that nature but while i was there i was also getting an education on 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 land claims and uh self-governance and the treaty process and so it, it just kind of evolved uh naturally for me and at at uh, i i looked at our community and, and you know looked at our struggle trying to get facilities for our young people and looked at who was making decisions and our our settlement council had nobody that was indigenous on it and, and I, I i thought that was unacceptable so when i was 22 i decided to run and uh, I, I became i think one of the i think i, I was the first indigenous mayor and uh, once I was elected, and I thought, "Oh my God, what do I do now?" But then, <laughs> but then I knew what I wanted. I knew I knew what we needed. At least I knew what I had run for, and so my focus was on trying to get better facilities in our community. And uh, as things improved in our community, people said, "Well, you're doing a pretty good job. Maybe you should be the MLA." But I, I didn't really want to get involved at that level. I had young children. And, uh, uh, but I, I was still very vocal about, uh, how things were not being done and uh, how our community wasn't being involved and how our, uh, people were, were left out of decision-making. And finally at, at, at a point, uh, even though I, I, my intentions were to carry on my education and I decided, well, uh, I can't just complain from the sidelines anymore. I need to get involved. And we need a better quality of life, and so I did. I did run, put my name forward, and, and I became the MLA, and and uh, I continued to plug away, trying to make the world a better place. At, this, at least at our little corner of the the country. When you arrived in Ottawa after the 2015 federal election, you had all this experience, lifelong experience as a politician, really, in the Northwest Territories. But when you arrived in Ottawa, you were suddenly working with colleagues who are mostly non-Indigenous. How was that different? It, it was quite a bit different. Um, uh, I was, I, I was, uh, I, w I can't say I was retired, but I was already semi-retired when uh, the calls started coming in for me to run. A lot of uh, the elderly uh, a lot of the uh, uh, indigenous leaders and uh, people from different communities wanted 
somebody that had some experience in politics and they also wanted somebody that came from an indigenous community because I knew the realities of living in a small community. Uh, but I had never been involved in party politics. Uh, we practice consensus government at the uh, Indigenous Council level, uh, the Municipal Council level, and, and at, at the Government of Northwest Territories level, which means uh, a lot of discussion and compromise. And, uh, you know, you talk until you have a position where everybody can live with it. And, and it's not... You, in that practice, in, in that system, you have to build alliances. You have to work together to make things work. And uh, so when I uh, was encouraged to to put my name in for uh, the MP, uh, I didn't belong to any party. And uh, I, I looked at the different parties and, and their po their politics and, and, and what they stood for. And, and I kind of lined up the best for for liberal and, and the liberal party, the writing association had been asking me. So I decided to run. And once I got elected, um, I got a real eye opener, even though I was, I had watched it on TV and I had, you know, uh, read a lot about it and, and, and studied a, a bit about party politics. I, I was kind of shocked at the level of, uh, of attacks that, politicians in party politics put on each other. Because you don't have a party system in the Northwest Territories. We, we don't. We have a consensus government style. So to see people attacking each other, trying to uh, crush the opponent, just, you know, just criticize them, I, I thought was so disrespectful. And I still do. I still think there's a lot of time wasted. I think there's a, a lot of effort made and and embarrassing people and discrediting people when the issue just kind of lingers there sometimes it's ignored just just to support your party and um it it's um it's not it's not my favorite way of doing things and uh sometimes it even makes me uh stand to the side because the issue is not what is being debated it's a the the back and forth of uh, mudslinging and everything else that happens and I I still I've been there six years and I still shake my head but um, I you know I I knew and I and I I recognized that we needed a voice in in the House of Commons we needed the Indigenous presence and. Uh, I, I had lots of pushback. I, I had lots when I put my name forward, and I still do to this day from a lot of Indigenous people, uh, more so from Southern Canada, that, you know, how dare you as an Indigenous person line up with the government, the one that took our land, the one that put it in the Indian Act and the assimilation policies. But my response has always been, and it is my firm belief that uh, you can't make change unless you're where the decisions are. And I learned that, you know, in grade school, I learned, I, I, I it was my survival mechanism in, in the residential school because I was able to influence decisions and, and that's what I, I, I continue to do. And I think it's, you know, my presence as the only MP that attended residential school and, uh, the only MP that lives in a small indigenous community, um, 
you would think would be, uh, you know, uh, not even recognized, but I think I get a lot of attention because of it, because so many people want to know what's going on. Uh, the other thing that really shocked me when I first entered the, the chambers of the House of Commons and started meeting all my colleagues and, and talking, uh, you know, informally is the lack of knowledge uh, about the North and about Indigenous people. In, in the North, uh, pretty much uh, everybody knows about the treaties. Everybody knows the history of the Dene and the Indivaluate and the Métis. And everybody knows the importance of uh, dealing with land claims and self-government and, and righting a lot of the wrongs that were, were done to the Indigenous people. But your fellow MPs didn't. Uh, some of my fellow MPs knew a bit about it. There was There's some MPs that know absolutely nothing. They, they did not know what a Denny was. Uh, they did not know what an Inuvaluate was. And, and I thought in this country, in this day and age, everybody would know, uh, you know, the, the Inuvaluate or, or what used to be referred to uh, as Eskimo and the Dene are what is referred to uh, or was referred to as Indians, but both those terms are, are derogatory and uh, insulting. So uh, it kind of uh, opened my eyes that uh, we got a lot of work to do and uh, education on Indigenous past history and, and current uh, uh, situations are, are something that somehow we got to figure out that maybe by putting it in the curriculum or everybody should know uh, Canada's history and the Canada's history starts with indigenous people. So uh, that, that's going to be something that's uh, going to be very important. You mentioned that you received criticism from indigenous leaders when you ran for federal politics. I'm interested to hear a bit more about that. Do you feel that, that there's a conflict between representing indigenous interests on one hand and those of the federal government on the other? Yeah, sometimes. There, there's times when um, uh, the indigenous uh, governments and indigenous population want me to jump up and down and, and be very loud on, on certain things uh, that you know would force me to uh, attack members of my own party. Um, and uh, for the most part, uh, especially with constituents in the North, um, I'm able to, to talk to them. I, I have a very good communication uh, connection with uh, all the municipal governments in the North Coast Territories. I have good contacts with uh, the Indigenous governments and, and talk very frequently frequently with them and the government of Northwest Territories, all the MLAs and the ministers. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I have a good sense of what's going on and, uh, I, and, and I think that's the key. And a lot of times uh, there's issues where we need to, to have a, a, a good discussion on it because my, my plan or my, uh, my strategy is to have many voices from the North on the same, saying the same thing. And, and it seems to work because uh, I really encourage 
participation at the federal level, whether it's through committees or presentations to to different uh, caucuses, um, uh, then I try to get people from the north involved. And the more people know about how things work in Ottawa, the more I I stay in touch with them. It it's it's better for us. And uh, I don't think we've ever had this much engagement from from people in the north. And uh, it, they're excited. People are excited that they, they get a, a chance to, uh, even if it's over Zoom, they, they can present to the Finance Committee or the Indigenous uh, Affairs Committee or, or the Indigenous Caucus or uh, set up a meeting. We can coordinate a meeting with the Prime Minister or one of the ministers. and uh, it, It's something that we never had before. And the level of contact between the federal government now and, and compared to what it was is night and day. We never had that kind of access. So it's helped um, diffuse situations where people dug in their heels and said, you know, you can't do this or don't do that. Or, or our party uh, was would be trying to move something forward where we felt it wasn't right. Uh, the the communication level has helped us disengage some of these uh, these challenges. So uh, it, it's, it doesn't always work, but uh, for the most part, it's pretty good. It must really help that you have insights from both sides into the challenges and opportunities in achieving reconciliation. And it's quite a unique perspective to have in Parliament because you're one of only 10 Indigenous MPs. And as you said, you're the only one who has experience from residential school. Do you often get questions from other MPs about Indigenous issues? Uh, yes, lot, lots of questions. A, a lot of times um, people will just uh, want to sit down and have a coffee and talk and, and, and uh, talk about things that are, are, are confusing to them about the Indigenous people or Indigenous issues or, or just uh, want to see how I feel about certain things. Uh, sometimes there's uh, uh, private members' bills that are being considered and they want to know, uh, you know, they don't want to be insulting or they want they don't want to step on anybody's toes or they want to know what the protocol is. And, uh, you know, so they, they talk to me. I can't always answer all the questions, but uh, I, I try to give them as much of my opinion as I can and, and share what I know. And I, and I don't know everything about Indigenous people, but uh, because Indigenous people across the country are so different and there's no one size fits all. So I, I try to be honest with them and, and tell them what I can and give them advice the best I, I, I think I can do. It's obviously important for the reconciliation process that Parliament is representative of Indigenous people. And that's, of course, difficult with only 10 Indigenous MPs. That's just 3% of MPs. That's well under the percentage of Indigenous people in Canada. And even for those who are elected, there are challenges. We recently heard this from Umula Kakak and also from racialist MPs such as Selina Cesar Chavan, who has also spoken up about racism on Parliament Hill. What's your reaction to that? And based on your experience, how can Parliament become more welcoming and supportive of Indigenous MPs? The issue of racism is a difficult one to challenge. Uh, and a lot of time racism is built, built around ignorance of, of 
uh, there are other people's uh, history and uh, you know lack of knowledge on their traditions and their culture. Uh, I I get it. I you know I I lived with racism all my life, and uh, I try to not get stuck in a in in a in a situation where I'm angry about it all the time. But I, I think that um, as Indigenous people, we need more role models. As I said earlier, I, I when I decided to run, I was already semi-retired, but I did a lot of work in my spare time with youth, and I realized that the youth needed role models and the youth in our small communities needed to be able to see that people from communities in the north from small communities that are indigenous can make their way forward into the rest of canada and and that kind of that was one of the things that helped me decide that i should try to get myself elected and i i see a lot of people as I travel in the north, a lot of young people and say, "I want your job." You know, that was not something that people seen before because people model, model themselves after what they know and what they see. And young people, for the most part, all they could see was teachers and RCMP in the small communities, and usually uh, didn't get treated well by those people. So now uh, I want to see, you know, the governor general that's indigenous and somebody in Supreme Court that's Indigenous. But uh, I, I think there, there needs to be more education, for sure. And I think the education has to start at a young age. Uh, it would be nice to see the curriculum include studies and uh, education about Indigenous people in our schools. Because uh, a lot of times, uh, and, and it happens with MPs, they're they're saying things that are they're, they're saying things that are, that are uh, insulting without really knowing it. It's, it's just the way they grew up. And if you're not exposed to a culture, if you're not exposed to a population that's different than yours, you know sometimes you, you don't even know that you're, you're, you're being racist. And, and that's going to be a good start. Um, and indigenous people are not, are not looking for sympathy. I, I'm not looking for sympathy. Nobody in my family is looking for sympathy, but we want people to understand where we're coming from and what we're up against. You know, lives really changed in the indigenous part of, uh, uh, of this country when the treaties were signed and, uh, it, it it's totally different and the indigenous thinking is not it doesn't always line up with what the canadian population thinks and the goals and aspirations are a lot of times different and uh, it's important to understand that and uh, um as as mps uh, we're always working towards trying to get cabinet and the prime minister to develop a strategy that would work for us as, as MPs. And uh, outside of that, I, I, I certainly encouraged 
anybody that would listen that is indigenous and looking at uh, being a federal politician to to try and do so because uh, I know for a fact that if we had a hundred indigenous MPs in the House of Commons, the tone of discussion on indigenous issues would change, and and I think most people would realize that we're only trying to live at the Canadian standard of living. You know, we're only trying to develop uh, healthy communities. You know, that have healthy uh, people living in it with with uh, opportunities for our young people and a lot of times people don't understand that that's all we're after and you know have a rightful place at, at decision making tables our, our, we sign treaties and uh, in, in peace peace and friendship in order to coexist but that didn't happen once the treaties were signed government stepped in and developed this country without input from us and that that was not what we expected and uh, it, it's really been hard on indigenous people with all the different uh, policies that were introduced to assimilate people uh, it really created a, a situation where some people became dysfunctional because uh, lives were destroyed but we don't need to continue that way. We we can fix it. It's not too late, you know. There's there's been 150 years of uh, uh, the indigenous people getting <laughs> a really rough ride, but we can turn that page, and I think we're heading that way. It's really great to hear that optimism. With that in mind, I'll ask what I've been asking everyone through this series. What are the three top things that non-Indigenous Canadians can do or should be doing as colleagues, friends, or decent citizens to contribute to reconciliation? The top one has to be, uh, the priority ha- has to be uh, for people to educate themselves on Indigenous people's history. Um, you know, take, take the opportunity to read the Truth and Reconciliation's recommendations and and really try to get a really understanding of uh, what Indigenous people were up against and and why sometimes you see uh, people with addictions uh, uh, that are Indigenous, you know, uh, going to treatment and it doesn't work because uh, I can guarantee you that almost every person that is dealing with an addiction, and we have lots in Indigenous communities, uh, if you scratch the surface, uh, they're dealing, they're they're, they're struggling with uh, trauma of some sort, and uh, uh, it's either trauma from the residential school, trauma from at home, trauma from uh, you know just live trying to survive in the society that that doesn't understand them. So that that would be number one, but I think people need to be able to just sit down and talk to somebody that's indigenous and see what. Uh, where, where their thinking is at, and uh, uh, if if anything, uh, start to bring in an education system that has uh, education about Indigenous people, and and based on what the Indigenous people see as the the their history, uh, a lot of times uh, ed- education. Uh, that talks about indigenous people is based on somebody that 
was non-indigenous and, and drafted it and uh you know it doesn't line up with what uh, we understand e even the interpretation of the treaties and things of that nature uh, are, are so different so educate yourself ask indigenous people about their perspectives and bring those perspectives into the education system now what's the last one well i i think um if if we are going to have true reconciliation uh we need to try to work towards living, uh, have uh, finding a way to to make Indigenous people, allowing Indigenous people to live to the Canadian standard of living, and and, and that's got to include uh, economic reconciliation, and uh, and and a lot of people are, are of the opinion that Indigenous people don't want to see development, Indigenous people don't want to work, Indigenous people don't own businesses. But I think people need to really take a look at uh, uh, nations where the nation is strong, where the nation has uh, control over development and the nation is, is able to stand shoulder to shoulder with other governments. They, they cover the, the whole spectrum of what society is. You know, the, there is a business side to Indigenous people and uh, they can be very competitive and uh, they can, you know, provide a lot of uh, uh, towards the economy. And, and that's what needs to happen in the North. Uh, we have done quite a bit in terms of uh, trying to fit in with what the indigenous populations need and want. And 50% of our seats on uh, the regulatory boards are indigenous. Uh, we share in the royalties uh, that are, are collected by the governments. And so we don't have the same challenges that the South has when big economic projects come forward because the process involves uh, indigenous people right from day one. People are not, they're not made aware of a project after it's approved and then the, the government is trying to or the industry is trying to sell it to them they involved right from the time it's an idea and companies in the north now recognize that they maybe need to do a little extra when when they're working with indigenous people in big projects they sometimes have literacy programs and uh, education programs right on the job site a lot of times they'll take the elders and bring them to the facilities or the, the project site just to so they're familiar with it because people got to understand we're not we don't come from a background of oil and gas or mining or or any any of those type of uh, sectors so we need to be educated too we need to know what they expect so uh, uh i I, you know, I would encourage, especially people in the business community, to to look at uh, what the North is doing when it comes to companies. I, I think uh, the North can uh, certainly be a model that others can consider. Um, I know our regulatory pro process, for example, is being uh, checked out by other countries, and uh, uh, and, and it's it's something that we're quite proud of. Um, and and uh, the point about uh, economic reconciliation, I think, is also an important one. You're so right. Thanks so much for speaking to me today, Michael. Marcy Show. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. 
A big thank you again to Mike and McLeod for joining us. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to see a pattern in the everyday actions folks are sharing with us. First, they start with reading, and I mean really reading, the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Michael also talks about education, educating ourselves on the histories of the indigenous peoples across this land, bringing these teachings into our education system, and most importantly, based on what indigenous people themselves see as their history. Michael's last point was especially interesting to me. For true reconciliation, indigenous people must have a standard of living as the rest of Canada. This includes economic reconciliation and a future where indigenous nations are standing shoulder to shoulder with other governments. Thanks also to you for joining me. Until next time. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto and Canada 2020. The show is edited by Aaron Reynolds and produced by me, Elin Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Levier and the music was produced by Marius Miller. <laughs>